Welcome to another episode of Ask a Jew, where a secular, sinful Israeli speaks to her religious, God-fearing friend, Anya L, here with Chayalea. The... I'm sorry, that still makes me laugh after like a year and a half of that. My father cringes at the way you describe me, God-fearing. That you're a holy woman? Yeah, holy. <laughs> I, t- to me, you are the holiest woman I know. I don't know if that says more about me than you. Yeah, but... I think so. I think so. Yes. Uh, how are you, Chayalea? I'm great. I'm great. Thank you. It's a wonderful new week, Sunday. We don't usually record on Sundays, so this is a No, we've been all over the place because we've been some exciting guests. Yes, yes, exactly. We're we're working across time zones. I know. Yeah, Elle and I ran out of things to say to each other, so we have to bring other people. So we we usually only talk through our lawyers at this point in our relationship. (laughs) Um, but we do have um, all the way in the desert city of Beersheba. Um, for those of you who don't know, I think I just described it as the Palm Springs of Israel, but without any of the <laughs> old rich people. Um, we oh, have we David. Got a few of those. <laughs> <laughs> David Ben Moshe. Hi, David. Shalom, Shabbat How are you doing? Shalom. Thanks for being with us. Ah, thank you for accommodating me across all these crazy times. <laughs> yeah. No, well, it's our privilege. Thank you. We, David and I spoke uh, a little bit. We were introduced through a friend and I had so many questions for him. And as, as happens when I have, when I meet somebody interesting that I have a lot of questions for, I just say, you know, hold on, I'm going to hold off on all the questions and I'm just going to make you come on my podcast and we're going to record <laughs> all these questions. <laughs> well, hopefully I've got some good answers. People have I told me my so. life's at least been interesting. Yeah. I, 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 think, I think there's a movie deal in there. I, I don't know. Uh, like I, I'm, I'm talking American movie deal, not like low budget I'm, Israeli. Good. <laughs> yeah. At least a Netflix series. Come on. A, a net, uh, yeah, yeah. five, four or five part Netflix series. I can, I can see it. Oh my God. Totally. Um, well, David, tell us, uh, let's, let's start from the beginning. Where were you born? So I was born in 1987 in New Haven, Connecticut. Mm-hmm. I was only there for like one or two, maybe two or three, but I don't remember anything about New Haven. My parents moved to Maryland when I was really young, mm-hmm. like out country boondocks, Maryland. <laughs> like the house I grew up in, you look out the window and you just see cornfields. Wow. And either side of the cornfields, on one side there's a cow farm. The other side, there's another cow farm, one's a dairy farm, one's a beef farm. (laughs) (laughs) It's weird because I forget that America has those kinds of areas. Like I live in such a city that I, when I fly from LA to New York, I'm like, oh, look at that. There's like land. There's open space. (laughs) That's so actually cool. Most of America. (laughs) I know. I know. I forget. It's so weird. Yeah. So And then, so you grew up there. Yeah, so I grew up predominantly white area. I was almost always the only black person around. And kind of being different has its own set of challenges. Mm-hmm. Never really did great in school growing up. Kind of, My parents are evangelical Christians. Okay. And they believe strongly in two things, mm-hmm. Jesus and school. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like uh, Jewish parents, except for the Jesus part. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. yeah did not do great in school. I did like okay with the Jesus thing, but never really felt it like in my kiss guts. But like, you know, when you're growing up, your parents drag you to church every week and you don't really have a choice. But then when I turned 18, went off to college and was done with both of them. 
Mm-hmm. You have brothers and sisters? Yeah, so I've got an older brother who's two years older than me mm-hmm. and a younger brother who's seven years younger than me. Got it. But you were kind of the odd odd one out. Um, we're all odd ones out in our own ways. Okay. <laughs> we'll get to their story later. We'll focus on it. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so, so off to college you go. Yep, did terrible and dropped out very quickly. Mm. But before dropping out, I learned something very useful. The kind okay. of just hanging around campus, people would just ask me where they could buy drugs from because I'm a <laughs> black guy. <laughs> God, boy. Yeah. And if you walk the streets in certain areas of DC, people will just try to sell you drugs because you're black and they're black and they trust you. Wow. So I kind of at being a college dropout, no real funding, put two and two together and start making a living for myself. Mm-hmm. All right. So you Which leaned into it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which didn't turn out well. I eventually ended up in a federal prison in Petersburg, Virginia. Wow. wow. And what were you selling, if I may ask? So I was convicted of unlicensed dealing of firearms and distribution mm-hmm. of oxycodone. Oh, mm-hmm. wow. Was that, I mean, I just want to pause here for a second. Like, being arrested and the trial, like, was that, I mean, do you think about that a lot? Was that terrifying? Was it, did you expect it? Like how, what, what can you say about that? Extremely traumatic. Right. Kind of, you go in and like the first thing they do is they try to tell you like, oh, you're going to go away for 20 years, like help us. And then when you don't help them, they, but then eventually you see a lawyer like, no, it's not 20 years, it's more like three to five years. You're like, okay, three to five years, that's more manageable. But that's still a long, long time. Wow. How old were you? 21, 22. Wow. And the people around you at that time, like your friends and the people you hung out with, they were kind of in that world as well? Yes. Mm. Got it. And they mostly kind of disappeared. Right. And then even on, so in federal prison, there is a saying. Mm -hmm. If you get less than 10 years, you won. Okay. Because just the way the feds usually work is they pick up cases of like repeat criminals who they can then hit with a whole bunch of time. Their conviction rate is like 97%. They just don't lose cases. Wow. Mm. Yeah. Wow. And you're, was you, a, you, you were kind of pretty low, let me, n- no offense, but kind of low level offender. <laughs> <laughs> you weren't a big fish. Yeah. So mine went federal because the guns I was selling were manufactured in Florida. Mm. <laughs> My God. And along the way, they fell off the back of a truck. And yeah, that happens. Yada, yada, yada. Yeah, dozens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> now, so you're 22. You enter federal prison. What year is this? This is 2010. 2010. Okay. I have a question about prison. That is, I have a question that's like not on the topic for a second. Did you lose weight? Did you lose weight when you got to prison? Oh, yeah. We've talked about this a lot. We we could decide whether we'd lose or gain weight in prison. So you'll either get an incredible shape. Or incredibly out of shape. That's what we said. That's yeah. what I was thinking. Like, yeah, one I, of the two. There's no like, I would be so stressed out about that. I don't know. I, I would be very stressed out about that. But Hyla, I think you'd hit the gym a lot because you'd want to be social and like talk to people. No? I wonder. I, I, would, I would hope so. I would hope I, mean, I would use the opportunity to lose weight. 
I mean, the, the gym is like one of the social aspects. I mean, the big uh, thing of the way you survive prison is sort of, we call it bidding. Like, the way you bid is you set up like a very strict routine. Mm. And you follow it to the minute because that's how you pass the hour. If you pass enough hours, you pass a day. If you yeah. pass enough days, you pass a week. Pass enough weeks, you pass a month. You pass enough months, you pass a year, and then eventually, as Rath Hashem, you get to go home. Wow. Maybe, wow. Uh, maybe we need to go to prison, Hila, because I feel like it could help us <laughs> in our in our I'm routine. So undisciplined. But I don't know how. Now I you haven't heard the most terrible thing about prison. What is by far the boredom. Right. The boredom. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, think of it yeah. like this. During Corona, when you were locked in your room with yeah. a laptop and a TV and a cell phone, you could eat whatever food you wanted, whatever you wanted, how bored did you get? Exactly. Now imagine your room is a cell. There's sometimes like when you're being transferred. Like when I first arrived in Petersburg, the first thing I do is they lock you down in uh, 23 and 1. So 23 hours in a solitary confinement cell, one hour exercise. Oh, geez. Do you have to exercise during the one hour? Asking for for a friend. (laughs) didn't actually get the one hour of exercise. (gasps) Okay. But they never let us out. Oh, geez. By solitary confinement cell, what they meant was it was built for solitary confinement, but they put two more bunk beds inside because of overcrowding. Oh, my God. So it's like Uh, you in a cell designed for one person... For like 72 hours, never leaving with two other people. And there was like a half broken pen in the room. Oh there was God. nothing else in there. There weren't sheets on the bed. You just have the clothes on your back and you oh. just kind of lay down and you let no the phone, hours pass. No candy That's crush, terrifying. no Twitter. Yeah. Mm. Wow. <sighs> and you're just yeah. there with your thoughts, which is a terrifying notion. Yes. <laughs> Wow. wow. You know, yeah, about, you don't think about that really in, when you think about prison. Yeah, because you always think about the high action, like people getting stabbed, fights breaking yeah. out. And that, that stuff happens, but at least where I was at, it was so infrequent. Like the big thing was just boredom. Right. Mm. Right. Do you meet people in federal prison who are going to be there for life? Like, do they have. I mean, they, what, what's their frame of mind? Like, how do they get through the time? Like, at least so, if you know you're getting out, you have hope. What if somebody's there forever? What do they think? So they always think they're getting out. Oh, they if do? Think, okay. Yeah, they always think they're going to get out somehow. Right. Some of them have more realistic ways of making it work than others. Right. But I mean, if you think you're never going to get out, like, what's the point of going off? I know. Yeah. Did you meet any celebrities? <laughs> In prison? Nope. <laughs> no, no, no big guy. Uh, you know, that's the guy who did that. Or... Oh, my God. Okay. I mean, there were there were people well-known in certain worlds who were mm-hmm. around. Mm-hmm. But that's not like your average criminal is like just a small-time drug offender because the way that our drug laws are written got an absolutely ungodly amount of time for a small amount of drugs. Mm, I just, like I was in when they were doing like the, the, the Obama's crack restructuring where you said like people like, oh yeah, the guy got you know, 20 years for like three grams of crack. And it's like, well, he, 
he's mentally unstable. You can tell that. And like he's out of it. And they just have a bunch of guys like that, like small time offenders, like just the war on drugs. I think it's fair to say by now really did not help America. No, Mm. it's a disaster. And our jails are filled with people that should be let out. And I just, I, I remember like, I changed a lot of my views on the criminal justice reform when I went to see Brian Stevenson speak. He wrote the book, Just Mercy. I know. And I like was not really, I didn't know much about this world. I didn't like, you know, I grew up like Hasidic. I didn't, I didn't really (laughs) pay attention. Like I just thought, you know, anyone who commits a crime should go to jail forever. You know, like I didn't know, (laughs) I didn't think about it much. And then I went to hear him speak and it was a life-changing evening, literally, because I sat there thinking about the stories he was telling and thinking about my own children. I had kids at the time, you know, like teenagers at the time and like hearing about teenagers being thrown into jail, not having representation, not, I mean, and, and for petty crimes that really shouldn't, they shouldn't be in federal prison. And it was just, yeah, I've really changed a lot on that. Did he do, I love his bit where he talks about capital punishment in Germany. Have you heard when he speaks about that? No. Why? Because they don't have? Yeah. So he, he has this bit he does sometimes, his, uh, his TED Talk he did it. He says, like, I'm in Germany, and I'm speaking with them about, you know, capital punishment. And they come up afterwards and say, oh, you know, in Germany, we don't have capital punishment. And he said, well, why not? He said, well, with our history of how we've treated certain people, imagine if people found out that we had a system that was murdering people who'd been accused of certain crimes. And also mm-hmm. imagine that for some reason, and he goes, yeah, I'm like, imagine if they have a system that is systematically killing people accused of crimes. They just happen to be predominantly Jewish and reflect poorly on Germany. <laughs> you know, in America, with our history of racism, we're like, yeah, we pretty much only give the death penalty to the black people and it's oh fine. Don't right. worry. Nothing to see here. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing to see here. Right. Yeah. Aye. So, okay. So you got interested in Judaism, right? While you were in prison. Is that, so yeah. get, let's, let's hear this part. Yeah. Of this. How, so how did curious. that, yeah. you were, yeah. you were so bored that you were, <laughs> you were so bored that you opened a Hamish. <laughs> Pretty much exact. So I'm in the library one day and the compound's locked down. So when they lock down the compound, wherever you are, you're stuck until the lockdown ends because usually you get to move every hour on the hour. Is that like in Oz? There's like a lockdown all of a sudden because somebody got out of the cell or something? I mean, sometimes when people get out of cells, sometimes there's a fight, sometimes there's delivery. Mm. Believe it or not, I've not seen Oz. I'm not a big fan of prison television. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I can imagine you wouldn't, you wouldn't have any interest in that. Yeah, yeah I watch like half an episode of Orange is the New Black. And I was like, oh, yeah, enough. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I get so it. So how, how long, how, how far into your sentence were you at the time? I don't even remember. Probably maybe halfway through, okay. 30 months. So you were locked, uh, you were in the library and there was a lockdown. Yeah. And I'm just bored. And everyone's getting restless. Everyone's walking around. I see one guy who's just like calmly staring in his book. And time keeps passing. I walk up, look around. He's still sitting there. Everyone else is getting restless. Eventually, I sit down and ask him, what are these readings? I know it's in the language I can't understand. Mm-hmm. He tells me, oh, this is the Hebrew Bible. And then I notice something on the bottom of the page. And I asked a question. And this is really when my life turned around. 
I saw a bunch of boxes on the bottom of the page, which mm-hmm. is like a weird thing. So I was like, oh, like, you know, what's up with that? So he said that like, oh, it's different Parshanut, different commentators talking about what the biblical verses mean. Like, you know, one guy says it means this, this guy disagrees, this one says, no, they're both wrong. And like, this is like how Jews study the Bible with different rabbis through the centuries explaining things. And that really blew my mind because Mm -hmm. growing up evangelical Christian, the way I really understood religion at that point was you believe it the way the preacher says it, or you go to hell. Mm -hmm. And the idea that like you would have a religion where you would study different opinions about what different things mean and have a discussion about it really kind of blew my mind. And so that led me to seek out some Jews and ask some questions. I got some books and read them. One of the ones was Nine Questions About Judaism by Prager and I think Tulushkin. Tulushkin, yeah. Mm. Yeah. So this and, guy, was he Jewish or was he just interested in it? So it turns out he was just, he was actually a Hebrew Israelite who was interested in it. Mm. Okay. Wow. So how do you go about finding some Jews in, in prison? <laughs> <laughs> Do you want the politically correct answer? No, never. (laughs) The white guys who don't have swastika tattoos. (laughs) That's such a good point. That's a really good point. That's a great answer. The the guy with the swastika tattoo, that one. Probably not interested in Judaism. Yeah. I I mean, he is interested, but in something else. I feel like if I ever get go to jail, the first thing I'm doing is getting swastika tattoo, though. So I don't know. It might be, you know, you might have to, <laughs> to ask questions to protect yourself. <laughs> so I've got a good story about that too. Okay. <laughs> so about a year before I went into prison, I had this crazy idea, hitchhike from DC to Florida. Mm-hmm. So I went to my apartment and started hitchhiking. At first it was really slow because like you have to know how to hitchhike until eventually this guy who hitchhiked followed the Grateful Dead gave me a ride. He told me like, no, you've got to stand by the gas stations or by the on-wraps where the truckers are stopping. That's how you get the long rides. If you do all these small rides, it'll take you forever. So I listened to his advice. I found the gas station by an on-ramp. I'm hitchhiking. And like an actual like truck picks me up. So I get in the truck and the guy is super nice, super chill. He's like driving all the way to Florida. We get to, I believe it's South Carolina. Mm-hmm. And he hits the gas. And I'm like, what's going on? What'd you hit the gas? He says, I hate the state. I said, why do you hate the state? He goes, I have a brother who's doing life murder in here. Oh my God. Like, I, I spent some time inside myself too. That's where I joined the Aryan Brotherhood. And he goes oh. like this. And, and he just has this giant swastika tattoo. On his chest? Like, oh, yeah. my like the, like the American History X tattoo? Like oh, that yeah. Same one. Yeah. Wow. And I'm like, wow. <laughs> this could be a bad situation. Wow. Or, <laughs> like or he, a beginning of a beautiful friendship. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it turned out he was a really nice guy. He was like, yeah, just like inside you join a group for protection and that's what you do when you get tattoos. Like, I don't have anything against black guys. I think they're pretty cool. Like, he gave me a long ride. He bought me a sub on the way at like Subway when we stopped. Mm. He even offered to let me, when we got to Florida, sleep in the extra cot in the back. That mm. I turned down and I left that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. It just comes to show you that people are complicated, I guess. 
Yeah. Um, although I would think if you go into prison, you're not like Chayla, if you and I, we, we prepare a lot for the day that I guess you and I go to prison for, for embezzling funds from our listeners or something. But <laughs> I don't know that I would go and sign up. Like there's not a prison fair, like the college fair where there's like all the different, um, gangs. Right. But I don't know that I would seek out the it's- Jews. Surprising. You know, like, what are we going to do? Like, do everyone's taxes? Like, what are we going to do? <laughs> Although maybe we'll, we'd be able to help with the legal. I mean, lawyers do great in prison. Prison lawyers are definitely like, because uh, everyone charges for everything in prison. Like, nothing's free. Yeah. Wow. Um, okay. So you found, so did you find, did you end up finding any, any Jewish guys? Yeah. And what and you like, like, hey, can I hang out and study with you? So I would hung out with them a little bit. I hung out with Hebrew Israelites too. I mostly hung out by myself. Mm. And uh, for better or for worse, there's not a lot of people who are working on productive things to get their lives together when they come out of prison. Mm-hmm. And I really don't blame them because there's like no structures built for them. Mm. Right. Like, uh, so like I did a, woodworking course to become a carpenter and like the way that worked was so i did it because one in federal prison you by law have to work Mm -hmm. right those things people forget about you know canceling slavery is that slavery is still legal someone's been convicted of a crime and all federal prisoners are mandated by law to work for the state Mm. and get paid like 13 cents no like 13 cents an hour i believe 12 cents an hour when i was in the kitchen it's ridiculous Mm. yeah yeah and i started doing the woodworking shop which i got paid nothing i would presumably learn how to get a craft to work when i got out kind Mm. of what happens there is there's an instructor there's a couple of people who are carpenters before they went to prison and the teacher takes them and they do projects for the compound for free and everyone else just sits there staring at the textbook or reading magazines with no instruction or help. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm not surprised that things inside the, the government are not as effective as they yeah. could be, I guess. Shocking news. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. So. But then, so I, so mostly I was by myself and me and a friend kind of put together this program. We oh. called it Life by Design. Life by design. Okay. So the idea was we took this idea, which I believe I took from Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, which is like start with the end of your life, what Mm. you want. And then we figured out, okay, so now we then broke our life into different categories like rest and relaxation, family, work, and all that, and set like end goals. And then broke our life into decades leading up to however old we were. Mm-hmm. And every decade having a major goal. And then the decade we were in, we broke down into two five year segments. Then we took the five year segments, broke them into one year. After the year we were in, we broke them into months, weeks, days, until we eventually used it to make an hour by hour schedule to kind of keep us busy so we could get to where we wanted to get. Wow. And you, really? Somewhere. And the two of you did that just like independently? You just decided one day? Yeah. Wow. wow. And and where where in the end goal was it to become an Orthodox Jew and live in Beersheba? <laughs> <laughs> or, <laughs> yeah. so or was that a bit to, of a detour? So not to live in Beersheba, okay. but to become an Orthodox Jew was there. Really? Wow. Yeah. wow. So my first, so when I'm released, I was sent to the halfway house in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. Uh, first thing that happens you get to the halfway house is they lock you down because you're security risk. 
Mm. You know, they give you a bus ticket and trust you to go from Balt from Petersburg, Virginia to Baltimore, Maryland. And then you get there without any guards, your own will, and then they immediately lock you down for a week because you're a flight risk as if I was going to run away. I wouldn't have run away before and got my head start. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. yeah. Wow. And how and, how into your Judaism journey were you when you were released? I knew I wanted to be an Orthodox Jew. Mm. Wow. And my first trip was to the closest Orthodox synagogue, B'nai Israel, in mm-hmm. Baltimore, Maryland. And I still go back there and visit once or twice a year. I still talk to my rabbi there. I'm still very close to the community there. How, were they welcoming? Yeah, were they how, nice how when they you came in? You? So my first trip in, I come in. I'm there a little bit early, and this guy, Fred, unlocks the door, welcomes me, says, hey, how are you? He shows me where the talit are, but I decline one. I sit in the back. Everyone's nice. They offer me an aliyah. I decline it because I'm not Jewish. And they were just welcoming and warm and accepting from day one. It was an wow. amazing congregation. Like I know when you like read the op-eds of the Jews of color on the internet, mm-hmm. it sounds like everywhere you go hates us and no one accepts us. <laughs> and <laughs> yes. I, I can't talk about their experiences. I'm sure a lot of them are true and a lot of mine is luck. But for the most part, I've never really had problems Going into a shul. Hmm. Israeli government, different story. Like with <laughs> we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. But yeah. yeah, so I imagine, you know, you knew by then how to kind of walk the walk and talk the talk as well, right? Like you were, you knew the prayers. You, pr- you probably knew a lot more than I would know if I go into a synagogue now. I mean, day one, not, I had a general idea. Mm-hmm. But I mean, just mostly I sat in the back and learned. Like, so American synagogues do this great thing where they've got the prayer book page on the big thing you can say. Mm-hmm. Not like in Israel where they just assume everyone knows where they are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And like, if you stay there and pay attention and follow along and you show up week after, I always tell people that, especially people who've had like tough experiences with Judaism, that showing up regularly makes all the difference. Oh my God, that's so true. It's so true of a lot of things in life, right? Here's one of my favorite stories. So one time on Rosh Hashanah, I come into shul. And so sometimes when you're the black guy, like sometimes you have unwelcome experiences and sometimes people are just so excited that you're there and so happy to show you <laughs> off. And there's this woman who's there and she's like, so excited I'm here. She's like, oh, great. I'm glad. Welcome to our congregation. Let me bring you to the rabbi, like grabs me, brings you to the rabbi. He's like, rabbi, rabbi, you have to meet this young man I know. And he looks at me and goes, oh, David, he comes every week. I know him very well. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah. <laughs> But you're so right about just showing up consistently because it does make all the difference. I see with Mm -hmm. my students, the ones who come every Shabbat dinner, who come around regularly, they just feel more comfortable and more part of it. And they start to learn all the little nuances of, you know, the community's behavior. And and Mm -hmm. it's just so much better than just showing up randomly every once in a while. You can't just do high holidays. You can't like, you have to show up consistently over a period of time. And then you get comfortable. When you're comfortable, people treat you like you're comfortable. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. And then when people don't, you can yell at them. You yeah. them in Hebrew, they'll feel really bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wanted to, I want to ask as somebody who, who doesn't have that, you know, connection and um, 
I'm Israeli, but we talk a lot about the, in this podcast, how I'm, I'm not quite, um, you know, um, I, I don't do participate in a lot of kind of Jewish. Uh, You're barely Jewish, basically. I'm barely Jewish. Thank you, Kyle. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> they let me in, but but what? Where where did that fire come from? Where did that where did that desire come from to keep showing up every week? You know, we all have we all fall in love with things and then kind of lose interest at some point, or we all say like, oh, I want to exercise or I want to eat better, and and we do it maybe one, two, three times, and and then fall off. Like where where did that fire come from? One vision. Mm -hmm. If you don't know where you're going, any path will take you there. Mm. Like if you clearly know what you want, it becomes a lot clearer right now what you need to do to get there. Mm, That's so true. And second is not looking up. Okay, explain that. So I'm going to explain it using a story I heard about the Rebbe. I've heard this a few different ways of the story being told. Um, the Hamish Cult has a version of it, but I like the Rebbe version. So and when you say the Rebbe, you mean Chayel guy, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Rebbe uh, Milubavitch. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. Said, she taught me a thing or two. <laughs> yeah. When the Rebbe was young, he used to go and climb up mountains. And everyone would be tired, and the Rebbe would just walk to the top and then hang out the top before everyone else. So they asked him how he managed to keep walking up the mountain without taking breaks, without resting. And so he says, when you walk up the mountain, you look at the top of the mountain. When I walk up the mountain, I look at the next step in front of me. Mm-hmm. Like if you, it's hard to stay engaged in a process and you need to have a vision in the end, but there's this tension between being so focused on the end goal. You can't do what needs to be done right now because that end goal is so far away. You feel like you can't do it. You have to figure out how to know what the end goal is and only keep your focus on the next step and figure out how to do the next step. Because if you can just keep taking the next step, you'll eventually get there. That's wow. so true. It's true for, oh for everything. I, I need for... to apply that to so many things. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yes. it's true for uh, exercise, you know, for, for running or, you know, if you're training for a marathon, um, yeah. you know, you, you start with it literally the next step, right? Like, yeah. and, and also like I'm writing right now and I have a pretty love-hate relationship with writing. Uh, writing is um, terrible and I hate it. Yeah, ever, yeah. I'm a um, professional writer, but I hate it. <laughs> it's an amazing feeling when you're done, but I have, I have, you know, my vision, but it's sometimes so overwhelmed by what I want to produce um, that, you know, I have to keep reminding myself, just, you know, write another little half a page, right? Just, you know, get, get, get in there, get, get your, your, your feet moving and eventually they'll, they'll lead you there. So I it's think also- that's, that's a great lesson. I think it's also like setting, I think you're so right about the goal, knowing what your goal is, but also being realistic. Like I have this thing in my head that I want to be a scholar, but like, I don't know what that even means. Like, how is that a goal? And then how do so you, you have to, you're right. You have is, to start small. Yeah. <laughs> Kyla, you need to go to prison. <laughs> so that is a good example because being a scholar is not a goal. One of the ways people mess up the whole goal thing is you need to be specific. Right. 
Like if you can't clearly define it, you can't get it. That's so true. It's like one of the things, especially, so I've recently been studying a bunch of um, Dr. King. And it's like one of the things that like the modern like activists miss out so much. Like if you read Dr. King's work, he like never like had a campaign to like end segregation mm-hmm. in America. He's like, I've got a campaign to allow seating on the buses yeah. in Montgomery, Alabama mm-hmm. to be front to back, equal, everyone can sit first come first serve. Right, right. That's a great point. Yeah. Like if you have these specific things that you want, you can then figure out who's able to get it for you. If there's a specific thing you want to be, you can figure out what body of knowledge you want. Like if you said you wanted to be a Talmud scholar, then like you get direction. So I want to be a scholar, like <laughs> a scholar of what? <laughs> be a scholar of Chinese poetry. You'd be a scholar of physics. You'd be a scholar 90s, of exercise. Uh, 90s <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. But I think a lot of good things That's come that one. way. You know, when, when we started this podcast and um and I think our, our, our friends at the fifth column um have a similar experience that they started it because are, are you laughing because I said friends? I'm laughing that you're like comparing us to them. Oh, yes, no, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. Um the, basically the same show. I mean you can't yeah. you can't even tell us apart. Uh but uh, you know it, we all started kind of because we wanted to do something and and we wanted to talk to our friends and record and not because we're like, Hey, Chayalea, uh, let's start this podcast so that, you know, a year from now we could be interviewing, you know, cool people like David mm-hmm. or, you know, mm-hmm. um, so, well, you know, millions of dollars in advertising. Millions of dollars now. All these, all these ads we do for, um, I don't know what, what ads could we do? We could do ads for better help for the, uh, everybody always does those therapy ads, but I don't think people want to take mental health advice from us. Uh, but yeah, but, but you know, the, having a vision, but not necessarily saying like, okay, I'm going to start doing this podcast because I, by 2025, I want to be like bigger than Joe Rogan. But you know, what's interesting, David, like, tell me if I'm wrong, but I think that it makes a lot of sense what you're saying and your path to orthodoxy because I find that being an Orthodox Jew and doing all of the little mitzvahs that we busy ourselves with, right? Like from the morning to the evening. And that is kind of what you're saying. Like the goal is to be, let's say, a good Jew, right? Or a good person. But how do you get there? So the Torah gives us kind of this guideline, like, you know, start your day off by saying Modani and be grateful first thing in the morning and then do these blessings and then, you know, do like run your life based on these actions and you will end up with that goal. And I think that maybe like, I wish that kids who grow up Orthodox could see that. I don't, I think sometimes we miss that. I think of it as almost identical. I don't like, the skills that you learn practicing Orthodox Judaism are an excellent set of skills to set you up for success in almost any endeavor. Mm. That's fascinating. Kyla, there's something you can do. You can write a self-help book based on, <laughs> no, seriously, based on the tenets of Orthodox Judaism, but for everybody. But I think that it's, here's the thing, and I, I wonder if David feels differently, but like, I think it's harder for people who grow up in it from birth to see that because I never chose, like, I'm just saying for myself, right? So like, 
I never chose any of this. This is just how I was raised. It's sort of how I was programmed, right? So I don't think about the the discipline of being an Orthodox Jew because to me, that's just the way you live. And then I, I struggle so much with discipline in every other part of my life, right? And I feel like people who come to be an Orthodox Jew or choose to do it, they're practicing a discipline that I never really practiced, right? I never had to think about keeping Shabbat. It didn't, it, it's just, that's, it's natural for me. So, so what I would say to someone like you is that it's easy to think about time as a most valuable resource, but really attention is our most valuable resource. Mm. One of the reasons why you get a lot less out of it is because it's easy. Right. It's, it's mm. like, like my wife grew up in Israel, went to religious schools her entire life. Like if she has to like repeat, like to feel off the Derek, it's just like, oh, blah, blah, and it comes out perfectly because she's just done it a million times. And right. once you get to the point where you can do something mindlessly, you've lost a lot of the advantages of doing it. Oh my God, that's mm. so true. You're right. Interesting. God, I didn't so, know I was going to like have a life-changing experience this Sunday morning. <laughs> this, right. this is a very <laughs> spiritual <laughs> spiritual journey. No, you're but right. I, wanna... I don't pay attention to the things that I do because it's just it, natural it's to me. I don't think it. Yeah, yeah. You're not used to doing it. <laughs> exactly. Wow. Yeah. But Chayla, when you said, because I know you read a lot outside of, you know, Judaism, you yeah. read a lot of books and a lot of politics and history and and that's a different kind of stimulation, right? So Yeah, but not- I I think it's interesting. I think prayer is a good example, like what you just said about your wife like spitting out, you know, the the traveler's prayer. Like I think there's something for me when I take the time to read something in English, which it feels really weird to me to say any prayer in English. Like I'm so uncomfortable. It sounds Christian to me. Like I feel like I'm doing something. I actually feel like I'm doing something wrong. But, oh, blessed one. Yeah, yeah. like the, even saying the weird. word Lord yeah. is like, I, I just, it's cringy to me, right? But, but the truth is that I have to think about what I'm saying when I say it in English. And it, it does draw my attention more because and all of a sudden- permissible. Right, I know. <laughs> You're right. And that's why on Yom Kippur, it's, it's interesting. I've been doing this for years, but on Yom Kippur, we do this, you know, there's 10 times that we bang on our chest for the al and we say this like long list of like, I'm sorry for this and I'm sorry for that. And I always make sure to do one in English because I don't pay attention when I'm doing, like, I'm just saying the words quickly in Hebrew, getting through it quickly. You know, I'm tired. I don't want to stand that long. So I'm just like, really like, I read it faster in Hebrew than I do in English. And so when I stop and do it in English, it actually makes me think. And I never really thought about that idea that it's because I'm paying attention to what I'm saying and what I'm doing. So exactly. Thank you. It's like also when you, you know, when you know how to do something, it's a very different example, but like think of something in your life that you're very good at it, that you know how to do even something small, like a, a task at work, you know, when, when you do it so, so naturally, and then you have to explain it to somebody else, how to do Mm -hmm. it. You have to teach somebody to do something that's so basic to you. It, it's a good reminder that it's not that basic. 
I feel that and way. You realize how much you screw up your instructions. You're always like, yeah. "Oh, you just do this." You like left out half the instructions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. That's like, true. why don't you understand? I feel that when I when, when I explain things, you know, when I help people with like internet stuff or computer stuff, I'm like, "Oh, this this is like second nature to me." But it's it's actually it, it's pretty cool that I know how to do this because not right. not everybody does. But David, I wanna I'm 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 sorry. I wanna I wanna just take you back a little bit because we we kind of. Um, glossed over your your time studying uh torah in in prison so what what was that like hmm. mostly alone hmm. it's kind of like this mm-hmm. i grew up reading the bible and it never really touched me in a deep way but after I learned about Judaism, I could study and sometimes get like a feeling of peace, like things would work out, mm. like things are hard and difficult and ugly, which is all throughout the Bible. Like, go back and read, like, nothing nice happens in the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> lots of pain, that's for yeah, sure. Yeah, lots of floods yeah. and uh, fires. Yeah, and people sacrificing children yeah. and wars. And <laughs> yeah. Were you ever tempted to uh, to go with the, the Hebrew Israelites or the, the guy that you met that was already in the process? So I mostly hung out with them like on the pound mm-hmm. because they were much more socially acceptable like, group to hang out with. Mm. But one of the things that I believe in is that you don't, define your own identity identity is negotiation between you and everyone else in the world and so if you look at judaism that way and you want to be and this is what i thought through i said i want to be orthodox jew you want to be accepted as a jew no one almost no one debates whether or not an orthodox jew is a jew right Mm -hmm. But you drop down to conservative Judaism, I'm like, well, now there's Orthodox people that, well, no, not really. <laughs> drop down to reform again, Hebrew Israelites, like, again, like, there's some people who are, like, big tent people and, like, want to wrap everyone in. But I think that, again, your identity is not something you wake up and say to yourself, and it's mm. true. Your identity is an ongoing negotiation with everyone who you ever interact with. That's a great point. I never thought of that because I can say like, I'm a kind person, but if other people don't view me as kind, then I'm probably not. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Wow. Everyone you know thinks you're a kind person. You're probably a really kind person. Yeah. And and what about, what about your friend, the, the, the guy who did the, the seven habits with you? So he's doing pretty well. So he runs, um, a like laundry business now. Um, Okay. Virginia Beach. Wow, I, I haven't really gotten into that book, but I know it's it's helped a lot of people. The the, the seven habits of highly effective people, yeah. right? That's I mean, that was called? yeah, yeah. So mm-hmm. we took that from that book. We took a lot of things from a lot of different books. Like there's like a point where we're just like going around trying to like get a hold of self help books and like figure out like what we could do to not and because this is like very sad dynamic in prison where mm-hmm. like everyone is so sure that like when they get out. Things are going to work out for them. Mm-hmm. Like they're not coming back to prison. They're not going to get killed shortly after. But like it just doesn't happen. Like mm. most people, 
uh, right back a few weeks later, like you hear stories of like, oh yeah, like, like I remember I was all greatly affected by, I got a friend and like he went home and like a week later, I got one of our other mutual friends I walked by, is just like sitting down, he's just like bummed out. It's like, yo, yo, what's up? And he's like, yeah, like, you know, a friend, uh, he was in, was out with some guy, they went to go do something, the shots were fired, the guy driving the car got hit, the car crashed, they both died. Mm. Oh my God. And just, you only hear so many stories of people die going to get back in prison before you realize that, like, most of us aren't going to make it. Mm. Oh my gosh. Wow. So you two were committed to, to a different life. I don't know if I would say we were committed to trying to figure out a way that would work. Mm, yeah, yeah, wow. yeah. It's, it's hard. Yeah, I mean, and I'm sorry. I keep I keep trying to compare it to to things that I know from my world, but you know, I mean, that, that's how you understand things. That's yeah. like a good learning <laughs> but, tool. <laughs> you know, I imagine everybody wants to be healthy and and you know be great at their career and, and nobody says like, Oh, my, my goal is to be like a slob or to be, you know, <laughs> unsuccessful, but, but not everybody can help themselves get, get there. Right. Yeah. And then that's, that's the hard part. I love health, especially because it's one of the great place where I feel like, cause I've worked for so long as a personal trainer, like people get like so self-righteous about it. Like, Oh, it's so easy. You just wake up, you go exercise. Uh, it's like, Mm. calories in calories out (laughs) (laughs) yeah no it's it's about it's about like figuring out you know i I guess like what works for you and what little steps you can you can take to set up your day in a way or your life in a way that you'll be successful at least you know that's what i found so okay so you converted orthodox right Yes. You okay. went all the way. So now I have so many yeah. because I did not realize that to be honest. I've now oh, yeah? I have even more questions <laughs> about why Israel gave you such a hard time. So I'm excited uh. to hear. <laughs> well, now, tell us about I the f- that's what it was about. Obviously, I did a lot of research on before this interview. Uh, <laughs> research can be tricky, even if you did it, because. Not everything that ends up online is true, believe it or not. Right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we've heard. But so tell us about the first time you came to Israel and when you decided you're that's where you're going to make your home. So I did a birthright trip before I went mm-hmm. back to college. Okay. And like, I just felt as if it would be my home one day. Like you like breathe in the air. Mm-hmm. It's like this wonderful country. And I was like, you know what? One day Israel will be home. Mm-hmm. But what I thought that would look like was one day in the future, I would retire and make it my home <laughs> yeah. because I had like my plan all worked out what I was going to do in America. And it was like set. Mm. What was the plan? So after I got out of prison, I managed to find work as a personal trainer, which was mm-hmm. incredibly lucky blessed thing to happen to me the way that worked out mm. but so i've become a personal trainer and i'm like really successful really fast wow i'm like three months in the number one trainer at my company i get like promoted six months in and a big part of that was i ran to a specialty which was injury prevention and pain management oh and okay. i noticed a lot of people coming into the gym wanted like to get results 
and we go do the exercises that are the most effective for getting results because people don't have a lot of time. Like, oh, I can't do this because my back hurts. Oh, I can't yep. do this because my knee hurts. Oh, I can't do this because my shoulder hurts. I realized, like, oh, <clears throat> if we could fix this and then we could do this, you get better results than if we just tried to work around it. Yeah. So I started meeting with physical therapists in the area. I started studying rehabilitative science. I took a lot of courses and became like the go-to guy in the gym for anything that was injury-related, pain-related. Mm-hmm. I got really good at it. And eventually my clients and my coworkers and the physical therapist I knew all sat me down and were like, you need to become a physical therapist. Mm. So my plan was, one of the other things I noticed is a lot of these people would like have a prescription from the doctor for Oxycontin. And if you sent them to a good <laughs> physical <circle>. therapist, <laughs> mm-hmm. they would oftentimes be pain-free in a week or two without ever filling the prescription. Yeah. I knew from my time on the streets that so many people get started with Oxycontin from a prescription with the doctor that kind of spirals out of control. Yeah. So what I wanted to do was become a physical therapist and help shift the medical model in America to be much more movement-based and much less medication-based because I think that would have a positive impact on so many aspects of American society. Mm. And so in pursuit of that goal, I went back to university and decided that, okay, I've got a criminal record. The only way I could possibly make this work is to be a straight-A student with the most impressive volunteer work ever. <laughs> and I sat down, I made a plan, and in three years, I graduated with a 3.96 GPA. Wow. Wow. I've done a bunch of volunteer work. Like the most impressive was I was consulted for the Baltimore Police Department SWAT Division. Wow. In fact, if you decide you want to be a SWAT officer in Baltimore, you're going to have to pass the test I made. It's a hard <laughs> test. <laughs> That's awesome. And I still have some friends on the force who I see when I go back to Baltimore. And mm-hmm. every so often I answer questions and make help keep them on track. So that was you my know, plan. Uh, you know TJ Smith? No. He was, the, uh, he was a public information officer for Baltimore. Okay. But uh, never mind. So, yeah. Different, um, different worlds colliding. Yeah, cop friends. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's good to have cop friends. Cop friends are oh, yeah. very useful. <laughs> yeah, and, and, they're, and they're a lot of fun sometimes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so then, so then I, what? Then I got into two of the top physical therapy programs in the nation on my resume. Mm. University of Southern California, University of Florida. Mm. I went and visited both and decided to go to the University of Florida because they were both top 10 schools. Yeah. And University of Florida was cheaper and just like during the interview, the guy, the director of the program, like I told him like my goal, and he was like, we can definitely help you do that. And were you Jewish at that point? So I was finishing up my conversion at that point. Mm-hmm. Oh. You were wearing, were you wearing a yarmulke? And- yes. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. So then after I turned down the University of Southern California, except the University of Florida, I'm going to finish up my last semester, go close my business, get ready to move, follow my dreams. And then I start getting these weird calls from information I know they have. Like they call me up and be like, what's your name and social security number? A few days later, they call me up, like, give us the address of everywhere we've ever lived. So eventually I call the admissions office and I'm like, what's going on? Like, I know you have this information, like, what's going on? And she like talks around the question. Eventually I pin her down and find out what's happening is they're filling out an application for me. Mm. So I tell them, oh, 
I'm glad we had this conversation. You're confused. I've already been accepted. Here's the acceptance letter. It's got all the details on it. And then she says, no, no, no. So the way it works is you've been accepted into the graduate program. Everyone accepted to a graduate program is automatically enrolled in the university. With the exception of people with criminal records, they've got to apply to the university separately. No. Otherwise, they're not allowed to register for classes. Uh, huh. So I'm really upset. I go and talk to some lawyers, and all the lawyers tell me are, look, it's upsetting, and it's ridiculous, but you were released early from prison for good behavior. You released off of probation early for good behavior. You're a straight-A student who runs his own business and literally works for the police department. (laughs) (laughs) There is no way you're not going to be accepted into a university where you're accepted to a graduate program. And you're a Jew in Florida. (laughs) (laughs) So I fill out the second application and they submit it. They say, like, how long is it going to take? And they say, we respond to these on a rolling basis. And I'm like, that's not a meaningful phrase. Explain what that means. And she says, well, what it means is that we get to it when we get to it. Um, There's no obligation for us to respond to you in any time frame. But when we're done, we will finally, you know, tell you. It usually takes a week or two. It ended up taking about four months, which are four of the most painful months of my life. Wow. And in the end, I was deemed ineligible to attend (gasps) at the last minute. You're kidding. Wow. No. Wow. Wow. That's wild. It's... It's so wrong. People get convicted of a crime. They do the time that we tell them they need to do. And then we continue to ruin their lives. I don't understand. Yeah, well, it's also and then we wonder why they ended stupidity. up back in prison. Right. Exactly. Exactly. It's so not a Jewish way of dealing with, with crime. Like the Jewish way is once you atone, it's like you're a new person and it's over. And, and like, is we need something- to adapt that. Did they tell you why? Because they, they like you could have like people. I'm, I'm sure people with criminal records have been accepted to the university. They didn't even give you so, an explanation. No, they said because of my criminal history, I was inadmissible. Wow. Now I was at the point out. So I wrote a piece about this for Business Insider. Mm-hmm. They cut this piece because the legal department wouldn't let them put it in. Uh. But I think it's an important piece. Mm. The University of Florida is notorious for looking the other way for football players, criminal records, mm. hiring lawyers uh, to get them out of trouble, like leaving yeah. all the witnesses to not testify against them. So there's right. plenty of criminals in the sports programs, but it's just, and I think, and I think it's an important part because it speaks to one of the problems that we have in American society. I kind of, when you growing up black, I always kind of got the impression like, oh, like if you mess up and you're a great athlete or singer, then like no one really cares to look the other way. Mm. Like if you can look the other way from football players and like, oh, maybe this straight A student who volunteered for the police department and could maybe be a brilliant physical therapist one day is the type of person we should give a second chance to. Like just second chances belong to everyone, not just athletes and musicians. Well, I think that's that's true for a lot of different, you know, aspects of society is just a, a, a class and power thing, right? Like a, yes. a football player who has a chance of, you know, making it at a, at a 
a division one school. I, I don't know if Florida is division one. I don't even know what division yes. one is. I just think <laughs> yeah, it's like top football. Actual, actual it's a lot more <laughs> a lot more powerful than somebody who's out there to do something, you know, for just for, for himself and his community. Yeah. So that's wow. that's sad. But then you but 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 so did you go to on birthright before or during that process? It was before. Before I went before. to undergrad again. Mm. And then during those four months, which were so painful, I was waiting for an answer. I like thought about what to do with my life if I couldn't go to physical therapy school. And I decided that if I can't go to physical therapy school, it must be Hashem's way of saying, <laughs> move to Israel. Yeah. <laughs> First of all, I don't think Hashem ever denied anybody grad school. Let's start with that. But, <laughs> but no, in order but to move to right Israel, that's, that's pretty good. So you did it after you just made Aliyah after, yeah. after so one visit? So then what happened was, mm-hmm. I so I talked to my rabbi and said, all right, this didn't work out. I'm making Aliyah. He said, mm-hmm. great, but first go take like a two-month pilot trip unstructured and see what the country's <laughs> like because birthright is not an accurate representation of what life in Israel is like, like fair, day fair. to day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not a big yeah. party. thing because I just got back from a birthright trip two weeks ago, so I can I can attest to that. That is not <laughs> real life. That is a, yeah. a wise rabbi, yeah. <laughs> so I schedule a two-month trip. I plan on spending one month studying at this place called Mechon Pardes in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm, of course. Yeah. And one month where we just kind of, you know, I obviously didn't say this at the time, but I won't say teal around the country, but I travel around the country, I guess right. is what I should say in English. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Some people were teals, but they were travel. Did you so know I've Hebrew been, then? or? So I've been doing Duolingo. Which mm-hmm. is not the best way to learn how to speak a language. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No. It's a great app. Talk about setting small goals, though. Duolingo yeah. has like mastered that, right? Yeah. And then so my two-month trip came. I studied up for days. I loved it. Mm-hmm. I met this very nice girl. We started dating. Mm-hmm. She was like, why go back to America and make Ali Ali there? Maybe we should just stay longer. We can see where this goes. Uh. <laughs> Then I was offered a scholarship and a fellowship to do Pardes' year-long program. Mm. So I decided to stay even longer. And about halfway through that academic year, I got engaged to that nice girl. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then when I finished the academic year, we were planning a wedding, and I made my first application for Aliyah. Oh, mazel tov. And so- it was rejected. Is that correct? <laughs> Not initially. Oh. So now we get into, I was like to warn people before we get to this part of the story. <laughs> like if you want me to repeat something, because it sounds like that just can't have happened. Probably <laughs> I said it correctly. <laughs> and it's just an unbelievable thing. <laughs> so I applied in the middle of May because my student visa was ending at the end of May. Mm-hmm. They told me, oh, it'll be a few weeks. Don't worry. And then I went and consulted with a lawyer because mm-hmm. when you have a criminal record, you consult with lawyers all the time. About right, right. <laughs> and the lawyer consulted with said, your application looks great. I've never seen anyone whose tshuva looks this strong and it helps that your criminal record was before you became Jewish. Just make sure you always have a visa to stay in the country legally. Mm-hmm. So when my student visa was about to expire, I went back to the Ministry of the Interior and I was like, I haven't got a response yet. 
my visa is expiring. I need a new visa. They said, oh, you don't need a new visa. If you have a pending Ali application, you can stay in the country legally until it's answered. Mm-hmm. I said, that's great. But I talked to a lawyer. Can you put that in writing? They say, sure. They put me in a letter and it's all in Hebrew. I can't read it all, but it's got a nice fancy stamp and I'm happy. <laughs> so then a few weeks later, I go to Hungary to do a workshop about um, stretching relaxation techniques and breathing. And on the way back, I'm stopped at you know, the airport. They say, what are you doing? Oh, I'm coming back to finish making Aliyah. They're like, you can't come to Israel to make Aliyah. I was like, no, no. I was here already. I applied. Oh, I show him the letter. He reads mm-hmm. the letter. Calls someone, says, please step to the back. I'm detained for five hours in Ben-Gurion. Mm-hmm. The border police makes it abundantly clear that you always need a visa to be in Israel unless you're a citizen. <laughs> wow. I was in violation of the law not having a visa. Oh, gosh. Yeah. And if I Which ever is- am in violation again, I will be hunted down and deported. <laughs> wow. Wow. Which is exactly the thing that they told you. You didn't need, which I I am not surprised, by the way, as somebody who's worked in government and lived both in Israel and the U.S. I I feel like nothing can surprise me anymore. (laughs) But I mean, it's still awful. But I haven't looked into it Mm -hmm. a lot. What it seems like it is, is just there is a law that you'd have a visa to be in Israel. But when a Jew is making Aliyah, they overstay their visa. The policy is they just look the other way. Right. Mm. Right. Yeah. So what so, happened? But, so, but I got a visa to come back in the country, which was good because we had a wedding scheduled like a month from then. Did it help that you were engaged and they knew you had a life there? I think I only got back into like the thing that entered the interrogation was like I think I need to talk to a lawyer. I just want to get to my wedding in a month, and then instead of getting a lawyer, he said, "Fine, you got a visa, get going." Mm. Mm. Okay. So then the wedding comes. The wedding's in Beersheba. It is absolutely wonderful. And mm. don't worry about it until after the wedding. Mm. So then after the wedding, as the visa is starting to come close to expiring, they still haven't answered. And the other episode, this is September. I applied in May. By law, they've got to answer your application within 45 days. Mm-hmm. And there's just no response. I start going in every day and saying, I need a response, my visa is expiring. And eventually they schedule me an Aliyah interview. Mm-hmm. I go to the interview, and the interview is worse than the interrogation. Wow. Oh, boy. And that's start- Apneem, That's Minister of uh, Interior? Yes. Okay. And then the interview started with, God yeah, says here that you are a convert. How could you be a convert? You don't look like a convert. Oh. Oh what, is, what does that even mean? Wow. Okay. Yeah. And kind of went to, oh, you have a criminal record. I bet your wife's parents aren't happy she married you. Did they even come to your wedding? Oh, my God. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Okay. It was a pretty nasty, disheartening interview. And at the end of the interview, they say, okay, it might take us a while to answer. The Minister of the Interior has to sign off on this, who at the time was R.A. Derry. Mm, interestingly enough, interesting. is oh. also at that time was a convicted criminal. Just one time <laughs> yeah, he, he knows a thing or two about being a convicted uh, criminal. <laughs> yeah, and he, he yeah. too is getting uh, denied, but, you know, in his case, uh, rightfully so. Wow. <laughs> oh. And they say, but until there's an answer, we'll always renew your visa, so just come back before it's about to expire, we'll renew it. 
So another three months passes. We're in like December now. I come to renew it. They say, can't renew your visa. I say, I need a renewed visa. They say, if you have an open all the application, you you visa stay oh, in the country. God. And I say, I know that's not true. Because border <laughs> control told me it's not true. I'm and not doing that again. Looked, looked into it and said, there's no law that says that. If you can mm-hmm. tell me where the law is, I'll believe you. <laughs> to which the clerk said, it's not my job to find the law for you that says you can do it. It's your job to find the law. And I'm like, how am I going to find the law? It doesn't exist. He's like, that's not my problem. That's your problem. Oh my God. Wow. Yeah. You got to love so, yeah. Israeli bureaucracy. It's, it's the only place where they'll yell back at you. We never thought about that part when we wanted a Jewish country, you know, we never thought about yeah. like, are we going to be good at dealing with these kinds of issues? <laughs> So I end up oh, in the manager's wow. office again. By this time, meet her on a first name basis. So really <laughs> friendly. <laughs> and she looks at the computer and says, yes, the computer says, we can't give you a visa because if your application is denied, we don't want you to be able to stay in the country any additional time. Oh. And I was like, that's not helpful. Why don't they just answer? Mm. And that's when we start doing the lobbying. We start telling the story publicly. Mm. And eventually we get an answer from Michael Oren sends a letter and the answer. Mm. Michael um, Oren, who was a m- ambassador, Israeli Oren ambassador to the US. Yeah. yeah. And what mm-hmm. the Ministry of Terror tells him is basically it's taking a long time because of the criminal record. And if he was worried about being in the country illegally, that he should have made Aliyah from America. Oh my God. Okay, and wow. shouldn't shouldn't have uh, fallen in love. Yeah, and married. yeah. Who needs more Jewish babies? Right. <laughs> oh my God, that's right. Wow. And then so that- we we keep pushing, and eventually we get the response, and this is now January, and I am denied. And mm. this was wow. where things start getting crazy because this whole time we're like my Jewish status is set. I'm an Orthodox conversion. I was married in Israel through the rabbinute. Like, there's nothing to talk about with my Judaism, just the criminal record. But the denial letter said that my conversion was unacceptable. What? It did not elaborate why. Wow. It did say that I was welcome to apply for status through my partner. Mm -hmm. Wow. Which is an important note. So I go back to the lawyers. We're all in shock. First thing they say is like, they can't just say your conversion's not good. Like you meet all the standards of conversion by law. They have to explain what's not good so you can argue. Like yeah. I can't write an appeal to what's unacceptable. Why is it unacceptable? What do they do? Right. So basically our appeal letter, said, they said 21 days to appeal. So I send it, we send it the appeal. It says, we'd like to appeal this. We don't know what's wrong. It lists like the criteria for conversion to a law return. It says, I meet all of them. That we ended up getting answered to for like two years. Wow. And during this time, my wife is pregnant with our first child. We're mm. now going on like nine months of me being in Israel with a job waiting for me and no work permit. Oh, mm. my God. And so we decided, so I could apply for status through being in a, my relationship. So it's like, let so we check with the lawyers. They say, yes, if you get a visa to work for your relationship, that won't hurt your Aliyah case. So we apply based on being married. Mm-hmm. And that is denied. What? Yeah. Wow. So the reason that was denied was for questions of status in Israel. The Ministry of the Interior only accepts civil marriages. 
and civil marriages don't exist in Israel. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> because our marriage was Israeli, it was unacceptable to the government of Israel for me to get status. So you need to have a civil marriage outside of Israel. To get status to in get Israel. To get status in Israel. Wow. So yes. what a your orthodox rule. Your orthodox um, marriage was <laughs> not... But they did not, tell me yeah. that I was in the wrong office because if I got married through the revenue, I'm Jewish, I should be doing a law of return anyway. It'll be much easier. Just go next door and do that. My lawyer flipped out because, <laughs> like, they told us next door he couldn't do it. Oh my <laughs> and god! He can do it through being Jewish. He wants to do that. Just do it, and they do a big fight. But that was denied as well. Wow! Wow! Then the Jewish agency finally got involved because at first they wouldn't touch it because the criminal. So one of the things with the criminal record is no law. Never spend that first Jewish agency. Like any organization that exists to help people mm. has like a little asterisk. If you have a criminal record, they won't help you. Wow. <clears throat> really? But now the Jewish agency said, oh, well, you have this piece of paper from the Ministry of the Interior that proves the problem is your conversion, not your criminal record, so we can help you. Mm-hmm. And then so they start negotiating. And the first thing they come up with is like, okay, we have a deal for you. First, we're going to get you a work permit based on being in an unmarried relationship with an Israeli citizen. And then after we do that, we'll get them to recognize the marriage. And then after they recognize the marriage, then we'll get them to give you Aliyah. Okay. So kind of the, literally the day after my daughter was born, I have to go to the Ministry of the Interior and write out a document saying, I'm receiving this visa based on being in an unmarried relationship with an Israeli citizen. Because, oh of God. course, the government of Israel wouldn't accept our Israeli marriage. Which, of course, had its own problems. For example, later that day, we were told by the hospital that we could not leave without giving them 5,000 shekels. Because since I wasn't a citizen, my wife needed uh, a shore, including a shore. Yeah, um, like, like a permit. Yeah, yeah. A permit, yeah. From um, the National Insurance Agency to pay for the birth because she wasn't married to a citizen. What? So that was like a stressful day. Oh wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But wow. I get that work permit. And then the Jewish agency hits a roadblock. They say, now the Ministry of the Interior is saying your conversion's fine, the problem is your criminal record, so I can't help you. So I tell them, that's funny, because I've got this official document. It definitely says the problem is with the conversion. And they say, yeah, you're right. You do have that document. Let's see what they have to say about that. Mm-hmm. So then they check in. They say, all right, here's the situation. They told us that 100% your conversion is fine. The problem is your criminal record. But they also <laughs> told us that because of the criminal record, your case is secure, so they can't put anything in writing to us. What? I said, great. So then they'll put something to me in writing saying that it's not my conversion, criminal record. They say, no, they won't meet with you or give you anything in writing that says that either. Mm. I'm like, you're willing to accept that story from them? It sounds <laughs> like they're telling me one thing and telling you something else, and they won't put it in writing, and they've made all the excuses in the world to not have to answer why they're saying different things to us, and you believe that? And Jewish agency says, nothing we can do. Our hands are tied. They told us verbally. We have to trust them verbally. Can't help you anymore. Wow. So then more time passes. We try to get an answer to the appeal. We go to the ombudsman's office. The ombudsman's like, you're right. 
They've got answers within 45 days. We'll see what's going on. Get you an answer. We call and check up with them later, and they say, yeah, they ignored us too. The Ministry of the Interior ignores us. We're not really sure what to do. So I guess if they tell you anything, call us back. We'll try to help. Oh my God. <laughs> wow. Like, yeah. So this whole process is how how many years in the making? Because it does it does have an happy a happy ending, thankfully. Yeah. But how many uh, yeah, I mean, how many years is this into the process? So this is three and a half years in? Wow. Yeah. So then we decide no one can get anything moving on the whole Jewish thing. We're getting these conflicting things. They're just playing with everyone we send to talk to them. Let's go get a civil marriage mm. so that I can get a better permit to live in Israel and get on national insurance, which is mm-hmm. much cheaper. Mm-hmm. Fly to America, get married again. We come back, we try to register, and we are denied once again. Mm. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> wow. So this time, the reason was they couldn't register me as married to my wife with our new marriage because she was already registered as married to me through our old marriage, <laughs> and she couldn't be married twice. You're kidding. It, no. This no. is like a, like a TV show. This yeah. is incredible. <laughs> this is wow. actually, I'm sorry I'm laughing because I know that was painful time for you, but man. No, I, I mean, it's, yeah. it's hilarious. I mean, very few people have been told you can't marry your wife because she's already married to you. Yeah, no, what, that's amazing. Like, what, was, really, what was worse, being in prison or dealing with Israeli bureaucracy <laughs> for three and a half years? Dealing with Israeli bureaucracy. <laughs> <laughs> More frustrating, for it's sure. It's just like, I don't know if you know the show Veep. Do you watch it? No. Yeah. Oh, my God. This just sounds like the show Veep yeah. run, running a country. Anyway, It's about, on. like, the vice yeah. president of the United States. I it's so it's shocking on one hand and also just so frustrating frustrating but 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 again like i think people don't understand the level of of incompetence and and i'm not saying specifically (laughs) like but just like in government agencies in in general yeah that's true um so So did you think this was a wait wait i have a question did you think this was a racial issue like where because i mean i i I thought, I mean, and again, I didn't do that much, but I thought that there was a racial component to this. And I were, was that what you were thinking at the time? Or were so, other people telling that to you? Where did that come in? A lot of people think that. Uh-huh. We don't have any evidence of that. And I very much try not to be that person playing the race card, especially right. when there's other. I mean... So one of the things about this last thing was this is not being able to marry my wife because she was married to me was that finally got us <laughs> on the news. Uh-huh. And mm-hmm. up until that point, like a lot of these things are, like the Ministry of the Interior is just terrible to everyone. Like it just does yeah. not function. Right. Yeah. yeah, I had to renew my passport last time I was in Israel. It was, uh, it was uh, quite an adventure. Yeah. <laughs> so, but getting on the front page of the news makes... All of a sudden, yeah. those government agencies who wouldn't respond to your appeals and answer you suddenly answer a lot quicker once you're front page news. That's oh, yeah. Interesting. That, that is very true. What they said was, okay, your conversion is fine in writing. Now the problem is the criminal record. And to deal with the criminal record, you're going to have to do a trial period. And at the end of your trial period, you'll be given full citizenship. Wow. So we said, great. How long is the trial period? They said, however long we say it is. I say, (laughs) 
What does that mean? They say, well, when we say it's over, it'll be over. Oh, my God. So I get a new visa. The visa lasts a year. We go through the entire year. Nothing else happens. I come in to renew the visa. I say, it's been a year. Logically, I guess this would mean the trial period's over. Like, I get citizenship. They say, no, you've got to apply again. I say, well, how long is the trial period? And they say, the trial period is as long as we say it is. Oh and, <laughs> and so we were very afraid that they'd do this thing, which is really government's known to do, where they just won't answer something for 10, 15, 20 years, and then they cannot ever have to deal with it. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. So to avoid that from happening, I went on a hunger strike. Yeah, I have wow. a lot of questions about that. I mean, yeah. how? <laughs> How did you well, function? First of all, you had to announce it, right? Because because what good is a hunger strike if nobody knows? So right. how, yeah. what was the process of that? So I wrote a statement and put it on Facebook. Mm-hmm. And then it was actually picked up by the Jerusalem Post to oh. put it in their opinion section. Uh-huh. Wow. And I was also asked to write another, during the hunger strike, another piece about it for the forward. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wait, so like, is a hunger strike like no food? Like you didn't <laughs> I eat? I was very concerned I'm about very, this part. Like, <laughs> like, so, different people do hunger strikes different ways. Okay. The way I did it was no food, only water with electrolytes. Oh my God. Mm. With the exception of, believe it or not, Remember my rabbis can be a hetero, it's not even Shabbat. So I had to do wow. like three zaitim of bread and two eats of grape juice during Shabbat. Kidding. Wow. Which, so how long did it last? Eight days. What? Wow. Oh and that's God. what finally broke the, the Jewish people is somebody refusing <laughs> <I know>. to eat. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Eight oh days. God. That's... That's insane. And did anybody from the government reach out at any point and say, like, please eat and, like, we'll figure this out? I mean, was any, I mean, I, <laughs> I mean, do that channels, they said something more like, we're not going to give it to you if you're on a hunger strike. Oh, interesting. Mm. That wasn't much better than what I had before. <laughs> right, right. There were no guarantees of anything. Wow. Yeah. And at that point, they'd probably dug their heels in deep that they couldn't, they didn't have an out. They were like, yeah. I mean, so eventually oh. we got an out. We got an email from the director of the Ministry of the Interior who said in the email that I would get citizenship on January 1st, 2023. And that was enough for me to end the hunger strike because I just wanted the date. Yeah. Yeah. Like having a date's a big deal. Like right. knowing how long you have to suffer is a big deal. Right. Yeah. It's also an, an admit, ad, admission <gasps> of, you know, this yeah, is happening. Something. Right. Yeah. Wow. But and then, did they but, apologize? Did they. No, why would they? They don't apologize for anything. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I asked that. That's, yeah. I should have known wow. the answer. To that. The other thing about the hunger strike was I had this incredible spiritual experience. Really? Because so I was outside the Ministry of the Interior in Jerusalem on Shlomotion. Yeah. And I was there day and night, with the exception of I went to the Kotel three times a day to pray. The mm-hmm. And like praying at the Kotel. For like eight days, three times a day straight, not eating is wow. like a is an experience. Wow! Did people know you by then? Were you like were people like, "Hey, that's that guy who's on the hunger well, strike." Well, I remember reading about it during the hunger strike, so it was for sure public. I mean, people it, knew. It, was, it, it wasn't picked up nearly as much by Israeli news. Yeah, and like 
the guys in the Kotal's Davin world, I don't think we're reading the English news. <laughs> <laughs> but American, the Jewish American uh, media was all over it. I mean, because I think yeah. they saw this as like a a moment of like racial and and interdenominational politics and like you know embarrassing the state of Israel for rightfully oh, so yeah. by the way um but i remember reading about the hunger strike and i just remember thinking like i mean could someone get him food i can't handle this <laughs> idea that somebody's like not it's like hungry somebody's I hungry yeah i know yeah. I know. It is that we finally found like the secret weapon <laughs> to bring down. Yeah. So did you? Wow. So what happened? So January first, twenty twenty three, you got your citizenship. Nope. Oh. So January first, twenty twenty three, don't get my citizenship. There's like a quick back and forth with lawyers. And they say you got to come in and set another application. Oh. And I tell them I'm like, look, my visa expires on January thirteenth. I am not renewing the visa. I'm resuming my hunger strike if this is not fixed by then. Oh my gosh. So I get an appointment after a few trips to the Ministry of the Interior for January 12th. And I am positive. Like, I mean, it's Israel. You like call people, you find mm-hmm. what's going on. There's like things you can yeah. do to find out. And we are positive that I'm not going to get it. They're going to want me to fill an application. They'll send it to the central office and they'll get around to eventually. And I'm positive I'm going to the hunger strike. Like I've got a written statement. I've been translated to Hebrew, especially done video, pulled out my old hunger strike sign, packed my bag, <laughs> I'm ready to go. Oh my God. Go into the appointment. First, there's this huge mess because they said I made the wrong appointment. I oh. made the right appointment. I took a picture of the post-it note the person gave me when she made the appointment. And they all the- know you there by then, right? Like it's not like you're walking in. So no, so this is Bear Shemus. I don't know you as well. Oh, okay. Yeah. So most of the stories in Jerusalem and just the end is in Bear Shemus. This part is in Bear Shemus. I'm like, what are the things in Bear Shemus? Yeah. I like show the post-it note that they wrote the appointment on. It's got a V on it. So the manager's like, she did give you the right appointment. Give me that original post-it note she hand wrote. I'm like, I don't have the original post-it <laughs> oh note. I can't help you without that. Find the person who wrote the note and tell her she made a mistake and maybe she'll fix it. Oh my god. Eventually we get it. We go in, they say you fill application, we expect it, we fill it out, and my lawyer says, How long do we get a response? We expect them to say, Oh, we don't know. They say, Oh, like half hour, an hour. We'll send it we'll send it up there. The people are waiting to approve it, send it back and you'll get your citizenship today. We (sighs) wait for an hour. I'm extremely stressed because just at this point, everything Every time it seemed like it was going to work out, yeah. some crazy twist happened. But this time it worked out. Wow. And I got wow. So you should have gone to Belsheva from the beginning. Mazel tov. Yeah. <laughs> well, congrats at least. I mean, Mazel at least tov. it's a happy ending. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So now you're officially an Israeli citizen. Yeah. Perfect. Now you can move back to the States. Yeah. I was, I was, telling <laughs> I was like, now I got to figure out how I can move to New York because this place is terrible. <laughs> that'll, that'll show them. That'll show them. Well, wow. David, I, we don't want to hold you up um, much longer, but I I did want to ask you a question kind of Go unrelated and, and speaking, speaking of New York. So, I mean, I'm sure you follow a little bit about the news and things that are going on here. Um, way too much. Way too much. Um, so we had, we had a little Kanye incident, um, a few, I don't know if like as a month ago, um, but there, there seems to be at least kind of online in the culture world, some 
kind of growing tensions between black Americans and Jewish Americans. And I wonder if you have any, any thoughts on that, on how, you know, how we can kind of uh, come closer together and see beyond some of these uh, uh, people who are instigating hate. I know well, that's a tall order. I should shamelessly plug my upcoming trip to DC and New York to discuss yes. exactly this topic in the yes. second half of February. <laughs> <laughs> For me, it's like this. We talk a lot about allyship, mm-hmm. like getting people who believe the same things as you, so you can work together towards a goal. But what's more important than allyship is friendship. Mm. Healthy mm. interactions between, like, if someone who has never met a Jew mm-hmm. and only sees how Jews are characterized on TV mm. thinks all Jews are white and rich, that's a very logical conclusion for him to I get wish. to based on yeah, his right. life experience. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. No, that's yeah. right. And mm. someone who's never met a black person, they see how blacks are characterized on TV. Mm. Be like, oh, very logical conclusion. I should be afraid of that person. Mm. But we are in America. We both are and will probably always be minorities. Mm-hmm. And one of the beautiful things about a liberal democracy is how it protects minorities. Mm. And working together to keep those core tenets that the founding fathers wrote so beautifully about and didn't live themselves. And America didn't live as a nation until the civil rights movement of the 60s, but it did get there eventually. And bringing back those values Mm. is how we move forward. Mm, that's interesting. And and things as basic as, as just knowing each other and interacting with one another, um, not in a political setting, right? Not in yeah, a DEI setting, yeah. just as, as friends and coworkers and, you know, neighbors. I want to tell you a story. It's a very quick story and hear what you think. So I take non-Jewish students to Israel as part of my job. And I took a group uh, right before COVID. It was January of 2020. And there were like five black students with us, including like the president of the black student union on our campus. And, you know, lots of like really smart, really, really smart students. And we were walking through the Arab Shuk in Jerusalem and a few little kids as we were walking by, our group was walking by together. There were a few little, it happens to be they were Arab kids. It could have been Jewish kids, but it happens to have been in the Arab quarter. And these little kids did, they started screaming Wakanda forever and doing like the, you know, that <laughs> yeah. cross with their arms. That's not what I thought you were going to say. <laughs> no, this is what happened. Like they started at those, at the black students, they were like Wakanda mm-hmm. forever, Wakanda forever. And they were like following them through the shook and they were doing that my students were like devastated and are so upset. And they were like, this is the most racist country and blah, blah, blah. And they're teaching the kids racism. And I like, at the time I didn't argue because I, who am I to say what's racist or not? But I was like, I don't know. Did that, was that racist? Like these kids probably saw that movie and saw these kids and were just relating to it, but maybe I'm wrong. I mean, I don't, what do you think about that story? And I like, I don't think that's racist at all. It's like, I know, right? 
one of the things that so no group is a monolith. Right. There's always different opinions and different ways people look at them, but certain cultural groups are known for certain things. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So no one likes to talk about the Jews do X, Y, and Z. <laughs> <laughs> and people are often like to say that like the blacks aren't doing well in anything. Yeah. But black Americans have the most well-known music culture in the mm. entire world. In the world. Mm. Like I growing mean, up in Israel, I had never met a black person <laughs> till I don't know what age, but we grew up on all the black sitcoms mm. and, you know, uh, hip hop, rap mm. music. It's, it's mm. just a different lens, I guess. But yeah. And people appreciating the things that your people have done culturally that moves people and empowers them is a good thing. Mm-hmm. And maybe it was kind of a crude way of mm-hmm. saying it, but like little kids are crude. Yeah, so right, right. That doesn't make them racist. They're right. kids. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. We I had know. a guest on the other day, uh, Michael Winahan, who said, you know, kids are the most racist, but that's because they, they, they see the world very kind of, you know, black and white, no pun intended. So yeah. he was saying how his daughter, so they live in Brooklyn, there are a lot of Hasidic Jews, and his daughter kept kept saying like, Daddy, why do the Jews do this? Or why are the Jews like this? And, you know, it, <laughs> it, it sounds like jarring to us as adults, but for kids, you know, it's it's how they view the world. They don't yeah, have I mean, the just, context. Yeah, we do this shortcut thing of understanding the world where like we like to group things into categories and treat everything in that category the same because it's efficient and we have limited brain powers and there's a lot of stuff to understand in the world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is why getting to personally know people is so important. You're so right. Yeah. Because yeah. then you, right. you see the complexity behind the individual person and not just a member of a certain type of group. Right. Yeah. I think it's helpful also when you, this is going to sound really strange and I hope I'll word it correctly, but when, when you know somebody of a different race or ethnicity or religion and you don't like them for whatever reason, and it's a good reminder that people, you know, people aren't like cardboard cutouts. Some people, I don't like right. this guy because of his personality, not because yeah. he is right. this or that. Right. <laughs> and I like somebody else uh, who looks like him or you know, whatever for their personality. And and we yeah. look, you know, look at our own communities. I don't like every Jew. Oh my God. I don't like most of them. <laughs> but <laughs> so, but there's such an instinct. I mean, I know I have that instinct to always defend. And I sometimes have to say to myself, like, actually that person doesn't deserve my defense, like in my own community, you know? And I, I like, it's a really hard, especially because of the world we live in right now, where it's like, everybody's trying to gain points for their team. And so like, if you lose a point, you feel like your team is going to lose and the, you know, and so we're always defending. And then I'm like, wait, that person does not deserve my defense. They are a bad person. And I have to like work on myself to make sure. We saw that with like people who came to like Kanye's. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) 
Yeah. Or like Candace Owens statement, I was like, that is crazy. What do you say? Right, right. Or like in the Orthodox group, right? Yeah. No, but in the Orthodox world, it happens a lot where there's stories about people in the news or whatever. And I'm like, get defensive right away. And then I'm like, wait a second, that person is a horrible person. And I'm not. Like, I'm not proud that we're associated in the same way. I think we all, like, feel the need to represent our communities. Yeah. And it's really, really hard. And I talk about Israeli politics very differently um, with Israelis than I do with Americans. And I, right. I don't say... I don't say different things. I mean, I, you know, I, I say who I like, who I don't like and what my problems are, but I approach the subject very yeah, differently. Yeah. Wait, because... I have two questions that I want to get to quickly before, cause I, I know we're going to end <laughs> soon. So I, my one question is, what do you miss about living in America? Like, do you, is there anything that you miss? There are people I miss. Mm-hmm. And I miss Amazon. America is the best place in the world. For Amazon I know. is amazing. Like, I could have ordered something when we started this podcast and it could have been be here already. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's funny because maybe they'll be our sponsor. Thing in the world, but yeah. like, stuff makes life easier. It's true. My brother <laughs> lives in Israel. What non-kosher food do you miss from your non-kosher oh, days? so many non-kosher. Yeah. Bacon. Oh my gosh. Mm. Crab cakes. <laughs> oh, Maryland. Uh, oysters <laughs> <laughs> like anyone See, who converted and like was used to trade food like yeah. they gave a lot i know yeah, yeah. yeah. doesn't know what she's it's missing true. i don't even know what i'm missing and i miss it i know, you don't know. <laughs> but my brother who lives in israel he made aliyah he lives in israel and he says the thing that he misses the most is sundays he hates Sunday mm. in Israel so much. Yeah, Sunday's Monday. Uh, he yeah, just Sunday hates it. He's like, I, I can't get used to it. Okay, last question I have. How did okay. your family, like, did your parents, how did they react to your conversion? Did they come to the wedding? Are they close? Like, do they visit you? Do you visit them? How's that relationship? So they come about, except for Corona, they come about once a year. Oh, good. at the wedding. Oh, good. I mean, I think once they saw how my life turned around, right. they got, I mean, but when my life was to where it is today, it's hard to argue that becoming Jewish was a bad decision. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like no parents says, oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I get that. I get and, that. It's worked out Angelical well. Christians, um, was it was it their first time in Israel when they came to visit you? Yeah. Um, that must have been meaningful for them. Yeah, so too, the right? first time they came was, well, I mean, they did like a whole different tourist thing. Thing, yeah. but there's, yeah. there's definitely a Christian tour circuit in Israel. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, I know about that when I hear from people who they went to Israel and they were there for like 10 days and they didn't go to Tel Aviv. And I was like, oh, you're one of the Christian. You didn't, you didn't want to see yeah, the gay yeah. bars. You yeah. But you went this. to the Jordan River. Yes. And debate saw the four churches that claimed he was born here. Oh, my God. That's so true. I know. I know. Oh, that's nice. That's happy, though. And, then, and that must be quite a story for them at the, you know, at the store or wherever in the neighborhood where they're like, oh, how's your son doing? And were you, were you born David, by the way? Was that? I don't yeah, know. So I was born okay. David. So I was like, how's David doing? I'm like, oh, he uh, could Converted to Judaism and moved to Israel. <laughs> yeah. like, oh, okay, cool. That's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. Oh, well, well one, David, so, thank you so much. Yeah. Oh, thank sorry, you, so you were going to say one more. I was, I was wondering if I should say one more Please. question about home time. So I can just last one, a short story. Mm-hmm. Okay. So where I grew up, there's like not really any Jews at all. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maryland, yeah. So one time I'm in Tel Aviv in the Kenyan. 
which is the mall. The mall. <laughs> yeah. And I see this big, tall, white guy just staring at me. And I'm looking at him. I'm like, he looks really familiar. He walks up. He says my name. I say his name. And I realize that I had a really good friend in high school. He graduated a year before me. But he had an interesting life, too. So mm-hmm. he graduated a year before me. He went and played basketball like a fifth year of high school. Went to play basketball at West Virginia. Mm-hmm. Kept getting better and better. Went to the NBA. Wow. Went to Europe. Went to Israel. Went to Turkey. Mm-hmm. But he got citizenship and had a daughter while he was in Israel. Mm-hmm. So now he's retired and lives in Israel. What's his so name? Just like wow. Joe Alexander. That is okay. so cool. Yeah, so just randomly, I've got like a really good friend from high school who happens to live like an hour and a half away. Well, like, That's we never so thought funny. we'd meet anyone from high school here, but <laughs> definitely a thing. That That's is so random. Funny. How did he, I, I feel like my brain would not even, I'd be like, that guy looks a lot like David, but there's no way it's him. <laughs> <laughs> well, and also shout out to Frederick, Maryland, where one of our dear listeners uh, lives. And I was at just there, actually, I told David before our podcast mm, that uh, yeah. I was in Frederick last month, and it's because we go to all our listeners' weddings. So if you want to invite <laughs> your wedding, if you invite me, like us, we'll be there. Yeah. No, the, 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 this listener is was a friend before she was a listener, yes, which yes. I think makes it even more special because the exactly. fact that our friends listen to this and I they know. can still stand us is pretty. <laughs> It's pretty amazing. Anyway. But um David, I can't can't wait to see you here in New York. Hopefully we'll have a yeah. little um a little get together. Yes. yes. And uh and you know, I want you to give that um Israeli passport a test drive. Well hopefully you won't have problems now when you come into uh JFK or whatever. Yeah. Like, Good luck. Oh, I know. Yeah. Thank you so much, David. Yeah, thank you guys. Thank you, Todalaba. 